Welcome to episode 202, looking out for long COVID and similar illnesses and clients, symptoms, research, and developing treatments, featuring Dr. Bruce Patterson. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. This interview with a medical doctor is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mental health professionals are typically not qualified to diagnose long COVID and are encouraged to operate within their scope of practice. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am really looking forward to this conversation with Dr. Bruce Patterson. He has been intimately involved in understanding the impact of COVID-19 and other neuroinflammatory diseases. And I've asked him here today to have a conversation with us about the impact of these neuroinflammatory conditions like long COVID on mental health. Um, Goodness knows Many of us in our private practices or in our work in general have seen clients get sick and then all of a sudden have this constellation of signs and symptoms they didn't have before or that have been exacerbated. So that is Dr. Patterson's point in being here today. I'm happy to, to have him. I would like to please welcome again, Dr. Bruce Patterson. Bruce, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's, uh, it's my pleasure, and especially to talk about such a important topic that has come up with... Um, both the pandemic and the, and the sequelae of the pandemic. Absolutely. So for our listeners, why don't you take a moment and tell us a little bit about yourself and about your background and then how you became so expert in the topic of long COVID? Well, I'm a virologist uh, and a pathologist, and um, I started my research career with HIV back in the late 80s and early 90s. So um, my entire career has been devoted to uh, virology and, and frankly, pandemics. You know, this is about my fourth pandemic. Um, you know, I was in China in January of uh, 2020, um, and when someone showed me the first uh, paper from a Chinese um, publication of this patient from Wuhan with this uh, unbelievable amount of inflammation, which, you know, uh, we found, and I found at the time, very unique in that it was driven by innate immunity and all the things that come along with innate immune responses being somewhat nonspecific can be damaging at times, uh, but it's our first line of defense against uh, emerging pathogens. So, you know, that started the journey for me, and uh, I really haven't, you know, rested since uh, that time, literally, I can't believe it was four years ago, but it's basically been a whirlwind of discovery for four years. Absolutely. Well, thank you for taking some time out from your work to join us and having this conversation. As we record this in early 2024, I would assume the majority of us at this point, uh, if not the vast majority of us, have had COVID, um, given how infectious it is, depending on what strain. Um, but many people have had it repeatedly. And I know for myself, speaking as a private practitioner, I have seen with my own eyes a client that gets it or gets it again. And then just this bloom of symptoms that may not have even existed before. Um, knowing that your background in medicine is certainly different and complementary to our world in mental health. I'm sure I'm going to ask you today for some definitions that were you speaking to MDs, you probably wouldn't go, <laughs> wouldn't need to, to give. Um, but for the average clinician of like, what does this mean? And what do we need to know? Um, because I know for for me, when I've looked at care for long COVID, so much of what I find is uh, long-term studies, but not very much information about actual care and interventions that can be helpful for these long COVID patients. So I'm hopeful that our conversation today will at least shed a little bit more light so we know what to do when we see this happening in our practice. Absolutely. And, you know, as clinicians, uh, you really see, you know, you, you see the patients, you see symptoms, you know, from, from day one, we were looking at underlying pathways. And the fact is, um, a lot of the inflammation that's caused by acute COVID, long COVID, and now even chronic Lyme, what's happening is there's these immune signatures, um, you know, that we 
we discovered, especially in long COVID uh, early on, uh, that showed that there was inflammation in long COVID patients um, that was highly, highly abnormal, but very different than acute COVID. Um, and, you know, the one thing we emphasized, uh, you know, early on was the effects of inflammation on the, the immune system, on the pulmonary system, on the, on the heart, uh, brain, uh, et cetera. And you know what? If you go to some of these long COVID clinics, you know, at major teaching institutions, you go to a neurologist, a cardiologist, a rheumatologist, an infectious disease person, all these specialties. Why? Because it does affect uh, multi-organs and multi-systems. But if you dig down deeper, you can find that at the heart of a lot of these symptomatic um, um, presentations uh, for all the different specialties, there's inflammation. And one thing I've been talking about a lot lately is that that also applies to mental health. And, you know, the you know, the link between inflammation and mental health is something that hasn't really been discussed a lot. But when you look into it, for instance, there's a paper on serotonin levels in long COVID patients being low. So they did a study of treating long COVID patients with Prozac. And, you know, that's all well and good. But to me, that's a Band-Aid um, because underlying that is the fact that Low serotonin levels can be driven by high interleukin-1, beta, and TNF-alpha, two prominent um, cytokines that are expressed mostly in long COVID, but also to, a, to some extent in uh, acute COVID. So you can almost explain these symptoms, um, these mental health symptoms, by inflammation. And sure enough, when you treat that inflammation in a targeted approach, um, those symptoms get better, surprisingly, without something that directly raises serotonin levels, for instance. This is going to be one of those times that I'm going to ask for a little more detail. Um, you had mentioned the acronym MECFS. Can you define that and then also kind of give a COVID 101, if you will, um, just knowing that our new cycle is no longer dominated by conversations about things like a cytokine response. Can you give us that 101 of like, here's what's happening with COVID, here's why it's different or similar to other illnesses and um, what that means in terms of inflammation? Sure. Well, a lot of these uh, chronic inflammatory conditions, including MECFS, which is essentially chronic fatigue syndrome, um, have always been theorized to be post-infectious. You know, some uh, inciting infection must have caused this. And, you know, and then there's been a lot of investigation into, you know, what is and how do they cause these inflammatory uh, symptoms um, from a prior infection? You know, a big topic is is latency, you know, is the, is the bug still there? Is the virus still there? Case of tick-borne illnesses, the bacteria is still there. Um, and there, a lot of thought went into that. So with the chronic herpes family viruses, they have true latency. So they have a mechanism built into their genome to lay dormant um, in your body after an infection in some individuals thus having the capacity to reactivate when they become immunosuppressed. Um, same thing with, uh, with tick-borne uh, organisms. Some people have proposed maybe, you know, there's a biofilm where these organisms can lay dormant um, and then come out uh, when certain circumstances exist. Um, we discovered in long COVID that parts and pieces of the SARS-CoV-2 virus actually uh, are found in monocytes, which is a uh, immune cell in the, in the immune system uh, that scavenges um, debris and dying cells. And we found pieces of SARS-CoV-2 protein. We found fragments of SARS-CoV-2 RNA. 
you know, year and a half, two years after initial infection, yet it still is there stimulating the immune system and, and causing blood vessel inflammation. We have preliminary evidence that shows that that may also be true of Borrelia uh, in non-classical monocytes. And these non-classical monocytes, their major role is to bind to blood vessels. And so they cause this vascular inflammation that we found is common to all these uh, inflammatory conditions, whether it be long COVID, chronic Lyme, uh, ME-CFS, maybe even fibromyalgia. So we're really identifying a new immunologic mechanism by which an organism can, um, you can have a post-infectious condition with certain organisms that doesn't involve replication of that organism, that there can be, you know, debris from these organisms that scavenged into immune cells and presented to the immune system, which I think is a fascinating kind of new, um, you know, a new arm of the immune system that could account for these post-infectious conditions when you can't find any uh, growing bug, uh, whether it be virus, bacteria, etc. Got it. So it's, as you said, the debris that's left over after the infection that is, if I'm understanding correctly, essentially keeping the immune system on high alert and contributing to chronic inflammation. Can be. I mean, if you take the chronic herpes viruses, they actually have a true latency period and they can lay dormant. And when you become uh, immunosuppressed, like you do with acute COVID, they can reactivate and ironically cause the same symptoms that we see in long COVID. That's why a symptomatic approach to diagnosis in long COVID is is highly nonspecific. And um, uh, I think it's fraught with, um, uh, you know, with issues. So, um, again, the need for being able to, you know, determine exactly what's going on in terms of the uh, inflammation is so important. That's what we've been doing from, from day one. Thank you. As you're talking about this, you mentioned Borrelia. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with that, that's considered one of the Lyme, quote unquote, co-infections. Um, in one of our former episodes, Dr. Roseanne talks a little bit about Lyme disease, co-infections, some of these chronic health conditions that can really manifest in our mental health, things like brain fog, uh, panic attacks, insomnia, um, many changes that I think in our culture are sometimes difficult to conceptualize because of the way that Western medicine thinks of very separate systems. As Dr. Patterson had said, looking at, okay, here's this for rheumatology, here's this for neurology. But if we look at this on a whole scale level, appreciating that these medical conditions could be having a major mental health impact and goodness knows COVID has been a real way to see that. Um, Bruce, as you're talking about this, one thing I'm thinking about is another condition that we've talked about on the podcast before, which is pans pandas. Can you talk about kind of, I guess, the umbrella of these neuroinflammatory conditions? Because I think so many mental health professionals have maybe never even heard of these and they could have such a big impact on the person that's sitting on our couch. Yeah, I think it's such a great uh, topic and one that's near and dear to my heart with um uh, friends, personal friends whose families are affected by uh, pans, pandas. And, you know, the uh, it's such an interesting condition that wasn't even recognized, you know, five to 10 years ago. Um, it was kind of put off to the side, like, we don't know what this is. And we may not know exactly what it is, or it may be multifactorial. But the bottom line is there's this vicious cycle of infection, inflammation, symptoms, treatment, infection, inflammation, symptoms, treatment, that pans pandas is a, is a absolute, I mean, it's, it's perfectly suited for that, um, for that model because, you know, classically pans pandas, uh, has been associated with chronic, uh, strep infections, uh, in kids, but you know what, uh, we're seeing more and more due to chronic herpes family and viruses, um, you know, uh, uh, herpes simplex, uh, HHV6, varicella, uh, EBV, CMV, uh, and also the, the tick-borne organisms. Um, 
And the commonality is that, A, they all have a chronic inflammatory um, infiltrate or chronic inflammatory state um, in addition to potentially having uh, autoantibodies. And that's why, you know, historically you've always seen, you know, with uh, PANS, PANDAS, IVIG, for instance, which is to basically neutralize autoantibodies. We've seen that work in some patients, but not in others. Um, And so it's really been um, haphazard, you know, uh, uh, treatment of PANS, PANDAS in the past. But the fact is we found this chronic inflammatory state where you're making uh, inflammatory mediators, inflammatory cytokines, you know, throughout the body that um, are actually causing a lot of the symptoms. And, uh, and if, in fact, you know, it's, it's well described in the literature that inflammatory proteins like interleukin-1-beta and TNF-alpha are contributing to, you know, as I mentioned, low serotonin, um, you know, anxiety, depression, uh, on top of everything else. So I, I think you have to, number one, reduce um, uh, or eliminate any underlying infection that may be active or capable of being active, um, and then do targeted treatment uh, at the immune system, not immunosuppressives. I think immunosuppressives just fuels that vicious cycle of infection, inflammation, symptoms, treatment, infection, inf- uh, inflammation, symptoms, treatment. And so, you know, you need to do a targeted approach towards the inflammation with immune modulators like we've been working on for the better part of four years. And, you know, if you read our papers, it's well described what, what we're doing, why we're doing it. But these immune modulators um, basically prevent uh, immune cells from uh, migrating uh, around the body or limit the immune cells migrating all over the body, including through the blood-brain barrier, binding the blood vessels and causing, um, you know, neuroinflammation, neurovascular inflammation, which uh, we think is sort of at the heart of all this. Um, and then whether or not there's autoantibodies, you know, we can test for that. And uh, like I said, do a multi-pronged approach where we treat both an autoimmune component and a chronic inflammatory component uh, and have better outcomes. For people who are listening who are familiar with PANS, PANDAS, so that's pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndromes, and then PANDAS being the version associated specifically with streptococcus. Um, are PANS, PANDAS, and for example, long COVID under the same umbrella? Like, what's a relationship between these things? Uh, because I think like I said, um, more and more clinicians are becoming aware of the PANS PANDAS condition. So how much can we kind of connect it to COVID-19 of like, look what happens with uh, a pathogen and then the inflammatory response? Right. That's a great, great question. And, and frankly, when we did machine learning and AI for all these chronic inflammatory conditions, whether it's long COVID, chronic Lyme, MECFS, fibromyalgia, PANS PANDAS, you know, um, we found that using uh, different algorithms, we had one algorithm called the Long Hauler Index that we published a few years ago, and we also had a severity score um, in terms of the inflammation that um, uh, we're just starting to use more. And when we graphed severity score versus Long Hauler Index, all of these conditions pulled apart uh, in the algorithm into distinct uh, clusters. Uh, so we had a cluster for long hauler, uh, we had clusters for long COVID, we had a cluster for MECFS, we had a cluster for uh, chronic Lyme, uh, et cetera. And, and so the similarities between all these chronic inflammatory conditions is um, they, had, they had vascular inflammation. They had elevated uh, SCD40L, CCL5, VEGF, all markers made by uh, activated platelets. It had increased fractal kind, which is a protein expressed by vascular endothelial cells, which bind inflammatory cells. And when blood vessels uh, are inflamed, they dilate. And when they dilate, you have headaches, 
migraines, brain fog, ringing in the ears. Um, and, you know, you have drops in blood pressure and increased heart rate, so-called POTS. Um, you know, you have, I mean, to a person, somebody with chronic inflammation is going to have hot, cold, and sensitivity. They're going to be cold when they shouldn't be. Uh, they're going to be hot when they shouldn't be um, because they can't regulate their body temperature. So that's my window into the blood vessels when I'm seeing these patients is, you know, why are you wearing that blanket on your shoulders in my office? Um, you know, you, you must have cold insensitivity and they, and they do. Um, so all of these things are um, at play and pans pandas fits into that as well. There's, there's blood vessel inflammation. There's elevations of markers like I mentioned before, TNF-alpha, that can contribute to anxiety and depression. And in addition, you know, using autoantibody panels like Cunningham panel and others, we can see if there's neurodirected uh, autoantibodies. And, and that really gives us an idea of uh, what to treat uh, and how to treat these uh, conditions. Thank you. I appreciate you kind of breaking down the relationship between these things. And it's very interesting what you just said, that once you actually sorted the data, you were seeing really explicit differences, not just this conglomeration. Because certainly for me, um, looking at the studies, looking at the research, not as a medical doctor, it all starts to blur together and I'm having trouble separating like what's this and what's that, which brings me to my next question. Can you talk about the most common symptoms associated specifically with either what might be called long hauler or with long COVID? Yeah, I think, you know, um, we published early on um, the symptoms that we were seeing in the, you know, 40,000 plus patients that we've seen. Um, there's been other publications which show there may be as many as 215 different um, um, symptoms in long COVID. One of the caveats is I'm now asking the question based on our machine learning and AI, is it really long COVID? Or, you know, I, I think the one thing that clinicians uh, and the world doesn't realize is that acute COVID, COVID causes immunosuppression. So if you have undiagnosed or, 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 um, or inadequately treated Lyme, that, that may recruit us uh, after acute COVID. MECFS, if you have Epstein-Barr and, and it's latent, it can be reactivated. And the bottom line is they all have the same major symptoms. Fatigue, brain fog, post-exertional malaise, joint and muscle pain for some of them. When I see joint and muscle pain, I'm leaning a little bit more towards uh, chronic Lyme. But the fact of the matter is this, there's so much symptom overlap that, you, you know, and you look at these papers, how they're defining long COVID, and you just ask yourself, well, is it really long COVID? You know, there's a paper in JAMA on 9,000 patients saying, oh, long COVID, it's almost diagnostic that long COVID has uh, you know, fatigue, brain fog, and post-exertional malaise. Well, number one, you test a single one of those 9,000 patients for markers of Lyme or were they Epstein-Barr DNA positive? Um, you know, and the answer is um, don't know. And so it's really hard, you know, to look at it symptom-wise. But when you start to look at the underlying immunology, like we did with machine learning, we were able to identify specific markers that were specific to chronic Lyme, MECFS, um, uh, or long COVID that differentiated them, even though there was significant overlap, especially in the, the vascular inflammation markers. I think you bring up a point that's really important, and it's, it's something that I've seen in my own work. There are over 200 different signs and symptoms associated with long COVID, which makes it very difficult to determine what we're looking at. You know, it's not like some other conditions that have a hallmark rash. It's like, oh, it's a butterfly rash. Okay, we know to go down this particular track. But with long COVID, it's so nebulous. And that that's what I've seen. Um, and 
for me as a practitioner going, okay, like you'd had depression before, let's say, but now after having COVID, you're having trouble getting out of bed and you're, you're reporting that you're having trouble finishing your work every day because you can't think clearly. I'm standing on the outside as a adjunct to the medical profession, not really knowing how to help somebody who's in that position. Um, I know that you had mentioned Dr. Patterson prior to us recording kind of the the value and the importance of being able to actually identify, yes, this is what's happening with long COVID. Where are we now in terms of being able to recognize it? So for example, you had mentioned Epstein-Barr for our listeners that aren't familiar with Epstein-Barr. Epstein-Barr, um, aka mono, the kissing disease. Epstein-Barr, and I'll let Dr. Patterson correct me if I'm wrong here, but once you have it, your body doesn't really get rid of it and it can fight it, put it dormant, but then it can be reactivated when you are immunosuppressed by something like COVID. And so there's been this relationship between COVID-19 and Epstein-Barr that all of a sudden you have people that develop like uh, chronic fatigue after having had COVID, even if it wasn't necessarily COVID-19 that did it. Um, but we could look at the Epstein-Barr antibodies, for example, and go, oh, this this puppy looks like it's been reactivated. Do we have any ability to be doing that with COVID-19? Is there a test that's in development? Is it going to be mainstream so that we can actually capture this instead of going down the wrong rabbit hole? Yeah, and it's, it's a great point. But I mean, the fact is, we've had a test commercialized for three years and offered at reference labs around the world, um, you know, and we're able to identify using that machine learning and AI patients who have long COVID. So, so don't get me wrong. Long COVID is definitely real. It is a post-infectious condition solely attributable to SARS-CoV-2, you know, so that would be individuals who are Epstein-Barr DNA negative, Lyme, you know, uh, serology negative or two-tier testing negative, um, we're very confident that that SARS-CoV-2 is doing that. And in fact, in particular, the S1 protein, which we showed in a very small population of those vac- vaccinated, that S1 uh, from the vaccine is able to induce uh, long COVID-like symptoms. Um in the absence of ever being infected. So it kind of proves our hypothesis about what's going on in long COVID because you can deduce it with essentially um, injecting S1. But but the fact of the matter is uh, we developed a test. We, we have uh, our papers out in Research Square right now, a new publication on long COVID diagnostic um, and differentiation from chronic Lyme. The, neg- the most important thing, and we've talked to a number of different groups, um, especially um, workmen's compensation and other groups to try and get benefits for patients with long COVID, um, that uh, a test like ours with a negative predictive value of 98% means if you're negative, you're truly negative for long COVID, okay? And... Um, and, and again, with a positive predictive value well over 90%, um, we're able to say um, with, with great accuracy who has long COVID, who doesn't. And, and we've also found, like I said, um, immune signatures by machine learning and AI that are um, indicative of chronic Lyme, MECFS. In fact, we, in a conference in November, I talked about the fact that we found five separate immunotypes of the MECFS. So it's always been, you know, a theorized that MECFS is very heterogeneous, can be caused by, you know, it's, it's been proposed EBV, CMV, um, the coronaviruses, you name it, uh, has been proposed to be underlying MECFS. And the fact of the matter is, it could be all of them. Um, it's very heterogeneous. And in fact, we found five different, at least five different uh, immunologic profiles within that category of MECFS um, in those patients. So it's really, yes, we are at the point where we've commercialized the test for, for long COVID with differentiation from Lyme um, and around the world. So it's, it's available in the EU. It's CEIVD marked 
in um, in the EU. So, you know, I don't know why it's not recognized. Um, it's baffling because it's been one of the most useful tools. And I can't tell you how many patients with Lyme we've been able to uncover who never knew they had Lyme uh, and, and get them into treatment. So, um, it, 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 for us, it's been very um, exciting to have those tools, a non-subjective means of saying who has uh, long COVID. And it's just unfortunate and it's a disservice to patients that it's not recognized, um, you know, widespread. And we're trying to get the message out by publishing as much as we can and uh, incorporating it into our new um, uh, FDA clinical trial. So um, we're really excited about that. But you're right. You need a tool to say, where does this fit? Because somebody may say, well, we don't have any treatments for long COVID. Well, even so, if I can tell you it's chronic Lyme and not long COVID and, and there are treatment modalities, then, you know, why wouldn't you want to know? So, um, I think there's there's a lot of great advances right now that are allowing us to separate and characterize all these different chronic inflammatory conditions so that they can be appropriately treated. In terms of what we're going to see in our telehealth sessions or in our offices, can you speak a little bit about some of the most common COVID-19 symptoms and maybe even the ones that are easy to overlook? Like, are there any, for lack of a better term, any weird ones that you go, oh, you know, like <laughs> you had said about it's warm outside, but I notice you're all bundled up. Um, what are some of those things that, that you're paying attention to and that would be helpful uh, for our patients, for mental health practitioners to be screening? You know, and you actually hit the nail on the head on the biggest one that it wasn't a, so much of a surprise, but it's something that's easy to ask, you know, hey, how are you doing? You know, how long have you had this? Have you had COVID? Have you been vaccinated? Um, any history of, you know, being bit, bitten by a tick? Any history of mono? You know, kind of like you've been mentioning. But then I go right into, hey, you know, do you have any hot, cold insensitivity? That's an easy one. Um, and almost to a person like, yeah, you know, I, I'm really cold when I shouldn't be, or I live in Florida, I'm cold all the time. Um, and that's a, for me, that's a window into your blood vessels. I mean, that's saying you can't regulate your body temperature. Um, and that's when I start to wonder about chronic inflammatory conditions. And then, you know, we get into that uh, a little bit more and, incorporate uh, the results from, you know, this, uh, these, this cytokine profile that we do um, and start to sift through the symptoms um, and, um, you know, what may, may be going on. I mean, it's um, with 40,000 patients, I don't think there's a pattern that we haven't seen. Um, and for the most part, it's pretty, it's pretty straight and narrow. I mean, I think there's a lot of people say, well, you know, lack of taste of smell among COVID. Well, you know what? You know, I don't see that. And to me, that means, well, maybe you had acute COVID that you didn't know about in the last two to three months. There's a great paper a couple of years ago, 2,000 patients with Omicron infection, 50% of them didn't know they were infected. And that's critical. Um, and then people keep saying, oh, there's replicating virus in long COVID. Well, you know what? How do you know? Most of these patients are on their third, fourth, fifth. I mean, I have a patient six times acute COVID. They may or may not know they have it. Yeah. Can you find virus? Sure. But you can't say that, you know, I'm still waiting for that. So we're the only group that sequences the virus in long COVID. And we only find 5% of the genome in tissues and in cells from long COVID. And this was before People started getting their second and third round of infection. And, um, you know, 5% of the genome, you can't make a building with 5% of the bricks, uh, which is what we've always said. So, uh, and then when they find replicating virus, I'm like, why don't you sequence it? I'm still waiting for that paper that says 
whole genome sequencing of SARS-CoV-2 reveals alpha variant, um, full-length alpha variant uh, RNA in patient four years after uh, infection. Haven't seen it. I mean, in HIV, we sequenced everything. We first sequenced to show fast and slow progressors, and we sequenced to show drug resistance. I mean, it was sequencing, sequencing, sequencing. I just don't see a lot of that in uh, in COVID, and we should. This is a virus that mutates uh, extensively. I mean, not maybe not to the extent that HIV did, but enough to make them resistant to um, uh, adaptive immunity um, from I mean, resistant from you know protection from previous infections resistant from protection from vaccines um, because they have so many mutations that that it's called immune escape and we used to talk about it a lot in HIV and it's not really talked about that much in SARS-CoV-2 and it's just baffling but it's absolutely a play and so we're still for me, we're still in the thick of this thing, um, and we will be. Um, yes, it's m- maybe less than some of the, the than obviously the initial pandemic, but I mean, COVID is still out there, and it's infecting patients left and right. And you know what? With the high percentage of patients with uh, that eventually get uh, long COVID, it's imperative. Um, that we know who's getting infected and by what. Thank you. I appreciate the point you made about the uh, study of Omicron that you mentioned that half the participants didn't even know they had it. And that was going to be one of my questions was, are we only seeing COVID, long COVID with patients generally who had symptomatic COVID or is it irrelevant? So you see this and you're shaking your head like, it, so it doesn't matter. You don't even need to know that you had it. You could still have long COVID. Thanks for the tee up. Um, it is the biggest misconception in long COVID that the severity of the disease determines who gets long COVID because I will tell you that probably 80 to 90% of patients with long COVID had mild to asymptomatic um, disease. So I, I, I'll tell you in four years during telemedicine, the number of patients uh, I had that said they were hospitalized with um, you know, respiratory difficulties or even intubated, I can count on one hand, I can count on one hand. And, um, you know, it, it really has nothing to do with anything. And, you know, in our paper that we published on viral persistence, we found S1 protein in uh, monocytes in patients um, with acute COVID, not to the extent that we found in long COVID, but we think the setup was occurring during acute COVID. And we don't know that was due to widespread steroid use or what, but um, eventually we'll have time to to look into that. But, um, you know, we have a a portal of over 40,000 patients with data um, that we could literally write papers uh, every week for the next 20 years on the data that we have. Yeah, thank you. So looking at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, there was a press release in June of 2023 where they identified the following mental health conditions associated with long COVID, fatigue, sleep disturbances, depression, anxiety, psychosis, cognitive impairment, obsessive compulsive disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder, among others. How I read that as a mental health professional is essentially like, best of luck to you basically in what you just said, which was almost all the things could be related to long COVID. And a good portion of these folks never even had symptomatic COVID, let alone believe they even had the infection to begin with, which the phrase that comes to mind for me is like shooting into a barrel of fish, hoping you hit something. Um, Because it's just so opaque thinking of these symptoms presenting in session that I think so many of us come at this from a cognitive behavioral perspective 
not from a functional perspective. So if a client says, oh, I've been really fatigued, we go, oh, well, tell me about your dietary changes. And there has been a lot of stress. There's been stress in your community due to that significant incident. And oh, well, you did just have that disagreement with your coworker. Is it because you've been struggling with insomnia? This is going to be really difficult for us to tease out. I appreciate what you had said about the hot and cold sensitivity and also being mindful that um, it's not on us as mental health professionals to tease out, but it's also important that we recognize what might be going on in front of us because we can never make the appropriate referral if we're not kind of honing in our senses to pay attention to what's happening on our couch. Um when looking at all, looking at all of these symptoms, which is basically, as I'm reading this, essentially all of the things that are in the diagnostic manual could either appear or get worse as a result of COVID-19. Um, you mentioned this blood test, but my understanding is that it's not mainstream in the United States. It's not necessarily easy to get. When we're still playing catch up with the symptoms, with the research, and with even any treatment for long COVID, what is a patient to do? The average patient who says, I had symptomatic COVID, and then after it, I started having panic attacks, and they weren't there before, and everything is so much worse, and I also have brain fog. Like, What is the best case scenario for that patient in our culture, in our society right now? I, I think you're absolutely right. I think when somebody comes in and they present with um, mental health issues, um, I think you have to really sort through some of the underlying, um, possibilities, um, you know, to have an adequate differential diagnosis and, and to appropriately treat. Um, cause like I said, if somebody comes in and they have anxiety, depression, maybe even symptoms of pans pandas with o more OCD like, uh, because we know obviously post-infectious can cause pans pandas. There's no reason to believe that there's a certain, not a certain uh, uh, inflammatory signature that couldn't, you know, replicate those symptoms. And so it, it really behooves um, practitioners to say, you know what, is there something really driving this? Because it may be something that's a lot easier to address than, you know, organic uh, mental health issues. And so uh, to in order to not leave a stone unturned, I think you have to really th think about the fact, because we know now that post-infectious conditions can cause mental health issues. So, yeah, I think that's now a major part of an initial workup of a patient who presents with uh, those symptoms. At the end of the day, what is long COVID? It's, it's post-infectious chronic inflammation. End of story. You know what? You don't have to label it. Um, and so that's sort of the approach we've taken. And not to mention, um, we think we had the best uh, damn test for fatigue in the whole planet. You know, and, and, and frankly, if there's a treatable form of fatigue, which may be just chronic inflammation from whatever source, and we have the ability to treat that, the whole test is not geared toward long COVID, not long COVID. It's towards is long COVID, chronic Lyme, MECFS, fibromyalgia, etc. And by the way, are there important inflammatory markers like TNF-alpha? TNF-alpha is the major driver for fatigue. It's also the major driver for low serotonin. So this is a bad actor, and it's made by activated monocytes macrophages. Thank you. I'm thinking, I'm imagining a patient and a practitioner says, gosh, you know, what you're describing, what you're saying, I think it would be appropriate for you to be screened for long COVID. And they go to their general practitioner and say, okay, I want to be tested. I think I have long COVID. I, again, I could be wrong here, but my fear would be that a lot of GPs don't even know about this diagnostic, not just for COVID, but for all these other inflammatory conditions. What does a patient need to be saying to their doctor to say, this is what I need? Rupa Health, which is a conglomerate of lab tests that allows one to order tests from different 
um, reference laboratories all at the same time. And, you know, frankly, it is being covered because it's a chronic inflammation test. Okay. And, you know, we code it as chronic inflammation. Um, cytokines are part of chronic inflammation. They can be targeted by therapy. So, yes, we've had really um, great success getting that uh, covered by uh, multiple payers. Thank you. And when it comes to a mental health practitioner who is thinking, hey, this, this client may be struggling with long COVID, outside of referring them to primary care, who else, like, are there specialists that we should be referring to? And then the other question that I want to get to is like, what do we do about treatment? Like, here we are talking about diagnosis, but then what about, okay, it's been diagnosed, what do we do with it? Well, number one, that's why we started the, um, the Chronic COVID Treatment Center, the CCTC, which is covidlonghaulers.com, is when GPs come up against someone long COVID and they don't know where to start, um, obviously, we've been doing the research and working on it for four years, have a 40,000 patient plus um, database. Um, there's nothing we really haven't seen. And, you know, this year uh, with the launch of our new website, we're going to start partnering with GP practices to make them um, chronic inflammation centers of excellence, which will include long COVID, uh, chronic Lyme. Uh, Etc. So that there will be resources for them to basically consult with uh, people who do this every single day. Um, and you know, it's just it, you know, if you go to a hospital and you're you're admitted to a hospital and say you have either an infection or you have um, uh, if you have cancer, the 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 primary physician there is going to get different consult services, infectious diseases, oncology, maybe rheumatology, hematology. So it's that model. It's nothing unusual. Um, and so if you're GPs and, you know, you, there, you have a number of different long COVID uh, patients or frankly, someone who comes in with long COVID, first thing, you don't assume that they just have long COVID. I mean, it could be could be any one of these other um, conditions that we've spoken about, but they have a resource to go to, and, and, and that's us, um, because we've been doing it since the beginning, frankly. And, um, you know, that's what our business is built around, is, is being a consult service to uh, practitioners. So it sounds like the vision is to improve knowledge and access for general practitioners so that they have this resource that they can use given how widespread this phenomenon is. And in terms of the treatment, um, can you speak a little bit about that? Um, because long COVID can be so uh, functionally impactful, you know, that people are no longer having the energy to get going for work. They're having difficulty doing their job because of brain fog or depression or whatever else. Like what does treatment look like? So, you know, early on we found this, you know, obviously this underlying pathology of endotheliitis or vascular inf inflammation caused by these non-classical monocytes. And, you know, in many patients, they also carry the S1 protein. Uh, of SARS-CoV-2, and and frankly, by disrupting um, these cells, pro-inflammatory cells, from migrating all over the body, including through the blood-brain barrier, and also with statins uh, preventing them from binding to uh, the blood vessels, um, we've been able to successfully treat uh, a very high number of patients. Um, you know, eighty-five plus percent. And, and the ones that the 15% were usually the ones in the back in the early days with us, you know, year one or year two, because we didn't know at the time that we could separate out chronic Lyme, ME-CFS and other inflammatory conditions that were exacerbated by acute COVID. So now that we've put all that together, and we can uh, more uh, accurately put them into one category or another. For instance, 
you know, Lyme, maybe you treat with antibiotics plus our, our drug combination of Maraviroc and statins. Or, you know, if it's uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, maybe you treat with Valtrex and suppress uh, Epstein-Barr, treat Maraviroc and, and statins. So, um, you know, the inflammatory panel helps us greatly, number one, characterizing it by immune signatures and then also being able to um, uh, treat them uh, with subtle differences, even though they have this major similarity, which is uh, the vascular inflammation. Interesting. So it sounds like through your lens as someone specialized in this, the treatment isn't actually that complicated once you correctly identify that that's what you're looking at. No, it's not complicated. It's new. Uh, It's a very new concept. Um, And it's a new use of these two drugs that obviously we just got the um, approval from the FDA to go ahead with our study um, that will look at the combination in, in long COVID first, and we'll probably go on to chronic Lyme. But um, yeah, we found this underlying pathology. And when you treat the pathology, patients get better. Um, can you speak, you mentioned a, a drug by the name of Maraviroc. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Some of the other medications you mentioned, like Valtrex being an antiviral. Uh, Maraviroc, I'm sure, is new to many of our listeners, just so we have... I guess, some frame of reference to tie to of like, oh, look, there are things that are being tried to treat this. Can you speak about that? Yeah. If you, if you look it up, uh, it's, an, they, it, it, it's listed as an anti-HIV drug, which was really a fluke. Um, Ravrock binds to the CCR5 receptor, um, which basically the CCR5, uh, CCL5 pathway controls where immune cells go in response to inflammation. It was a fluke that also happened to be um, the gateway by which HIV entered immune cells. So if you block that gateway with Maraviroc, then a certain type of HIV can't infect uninfected cells. So it was used and it's approved for use in HIV. It is an elegant immune modulator and, um, you know, it's, it's been used in um, studies on cancer uh, by altering the uh, tumor microenvironment. Uh, in other words, uh, inhibiting these inflammatory monocytes uh, and macrophages, which contribute to tumor growth through um, production of these inflammatory cytokines, through production of uh, a protein called VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor. So, you know, it's being investigated extensively um, as part of immunotherapy in cancer. And it was really that mechanism that um, uh, turned uh, us on to Maraviroc in January 2020 as a potential treatment for, um, for acute COVID. And, and Frank, because it, it brings down interleukin-6 and TNF-alpha, which were two of the hallmarks of the cytokine storm, um, very quickly. And and certainly in regards to long COVID, where you still see TNF-alpha driving fatigue, as well as TNF-alpha in chronic Lyme. Um, in fact, TNF-alpha is in the numerator of our new Lyme index. Um, but, you know, it reduces these inflammatory um proteins. And so obviously that has implications in cancer. It certainly has implications uh, in our hands um, for chronic inflammation. Maraviroc is a medication that's been around for a number of years. And as it stands right now, as you and I are doing this interview, it's currently um, uh, in trial for use in COVID-19. I would imagine it's being used off-label for COVID-19 as we speak. Is that right? Or for long COVID, I guess I should say, not for COVID-19. Yeah, for long COVID. But like I said, our trial for long COVID with Maraviroc and Atorvastatin uh, just got approved to uh, proceed. So we will be proceeding with our clinical trial very shortly. So in the absence of a published standard of any medication, for that matter, for long COVID, you've mentioned that this is you know, effectively an inflammatory condition, if we're not able to get 
this medication from our provider or for contraindicative reasons, whatever they may be, can't take this particular medication or cocktail, are there any other remedies available to patients? So the answer for, to the first question is, yeah, we did publish this in a case series last February 2023 in 18 patients taking Maraviroc and statins for long COVID. And we saw a statistically significant drop in symptom scores and a statistically significant drop in uh, inflammatory biomarkers. So we have that data. We also have a almost 300 patient study that was a follow-on where we used this drug combination for six to 12 weeks with statistically significant decreases in the inflammatory biomarkers. So um, we have uh, outcome data using this combination. And um, like I said, you know, we, we use it off label, um, but you know what? Uh, we need it. There's a lot of people suffering from this condition and uh, it seems to be uh, working out well. So, um, you know, we have data to, to show that both biomarker data and symptomatic data. And to this day, no one really has biomarker data because they don't have a biomarker. So um, we have non-subjective uh, measures of, uh, uh, of the drug's activity. When looking beyond a pharmaceutical, if let's imagine a patient who said, for whatever reason, I can't do that, I can't get it, I've talked to my doctor, they won't prescribe it, whatever the reasons are, or I'm taking this other medication, they said I can't take it because of that, whatever it is, are there any other meaningful interventions that could scratch the surface on this beyond looking at, um, you know, adequate sleep hygiene and making sure that you're getting outside and getting adequate vitamin D, you know, is there any sense in any other kind of um, lifestyle change like an anti-inflammatory diet, for example, if we're looking at this from a functional perspective and trying to um, support people who for one reason or another cannot take a mainstream or choose not to take a mainstream pharmaceutical? I mean, I wish there were. Frankly, I mean, in all the patients, thousands of patients that I've seen uh, personally, I mean, they come in with laundry lists of um, supplements and nutritional, um, you know, medicines and uh, other medications that, you know, they've seen. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you know, you kind of ask them, well, what's that doing for you? You know, and I, I wish the answer was, well, it's helping or I shouldn't even be here because what I'm taking is, is doing such a great job. But uh, I'm not seeing that. That said, I do think an extremely important part of recovery from long COVID, chronic Lyme, et cetera, because you've been debilitated for so long is there's significant um, deconditioning. And I do think. Uh, adequate nutrition, uh, you know, supplement support, et cetera, is in, extremely important to get that last, say, uh, 5% to get over the finish line and get back to your um, pre-infection state. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Dr. Patterson, we've covered so much information during this hour together and hopefully this has been helpful for clinicians and painting a picture not only about what long COVID looks like, uh, particularly the mental health manifestations, but also kind of what's happening in medicine that we need to know about to try to actually help people get better, not just identify what they're going through, but give them some hope that there's going to be some, uh, some improvement in their symptoms. For folks who are wanting to learn more about what you've talked about today, you've mentioned a couple of websites. Are there any other resources that you really recommend? You know, the best one for right now today um, is www.covidlonghaulers with an S dot uh, com because it's got all of our publications, it's got all of our resources, uh, talks, conference lectures, uh, etc where you can go into as much detail as you want about uh, 
what and why uh, we, we do things the way we do. Thank you. Again, for our listeners, this is Dr. Bruce Patterson joining us on a conversation about long COVID as well as other uh, inflammatory conditions that might affect the mental health presentation of our clients. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Patterson. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Keep up the good work. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.